Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Jason Apps to the show. Jason is the CEO of Arms Reliability, and he wrote an article titled Driving a Reliability Culture. We discuss culture, purpose, and why reliability engineers are set up to fail. Before we jump into that interview, I I just want to talk a little bit about a few things. The first thing is two weeks ago, I released a podcast episode on this channel titled Depression, My Origin Story, and How I Hope to Inspire You. It would mean the world to me if you listen to that as well as share it within your industry. I've struggled with depression for years and I've never been able to talk about it in the workplace until now. And I really hope that by me sharing my story with you, that we can start opening up that discussion in in the workplace and in our industry and reliability and really start helping some people. Next, the one person I have to thank and you know, for, for showing me some of the reasons why I've been depressed and really finding those root causes, and we're starting to try to fix them right now, is Susan Hobson from Elite High Performance Coaching. She didn't pay for an ad or anything. I just wanted to talk about it because through my journey with mental health issues, I met with, you know, nine or 10 medical professionals and therapists and psychiatrists and doctors and all of them. And none of them were able to really nail down the root cause. Everything felt like putting a Band-Aid on a broken bone. Everything felt like shallow cause analysis. And finally, I found someone who was able to really open me up, understand the gaps in my thinking. And really now we're starting the process of closing those and really setting me on, setting me up for a great future. I just wanted to jump on it and let you know um, if you're interested in getting some help either to take your game to the next level because you're feeling that you're hitting a glass ceiling or you're you're reaching out because you want to, you know, improve your lifestyle. Check out Susan Hobson, EliteHighPerformance.com. I put the link in the podcast notes. And one thing I found that was nice about her program was some of the other coaches that I reached out to, they were they wanted you to sign up for six months or three months, and we were talking thousands of dollars. And it's hard to tell based on a website and a quick phone call what you're, you know, if this person's right for you. And the nice thing that Susan did is it all starts off free fifteen minute phone call. You can talk to her about you know what you're trying to what you're trying to improve at or what problems you're having. And you can kind of discuss if it's if she's going to be the right fit. And if you proceed to the next step, she does a gap analysis, which as reliability professionals, we all know that it's a one-time 90-minute session and it's a fixed fee. And then after that session, you can either decide to go forward or stop right there. So regardless of what you're working, I like her approach. I, I have benefited immensely from it myself, and I do recommend you if you're if you're looking to take your game to the next level or if you're looking for some help definitely reach out to her susan hobson at elitehighperformance.com lastly i just wanted to to let you know that you're going to start hearing some ads on this show that's because i'm hoping to outsource some of the work that comes with podcast and content creation You know, most of you know I work full-time as an asset manager. This is a side thing for me because I like to share with you guys. And so I'm hoping to outsource some of that work to take kind of a little bit of a burden off myself. So you're going to start hearing some ads on the show. Also, if you sell maintenance and reliability products and services and you want to advertise on this podcast, definitely send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com or hit me up on LinkedIn. I definitely would love to talk to your marketing managers about it. 
We have a great audience and great community here at Rob's Reliability Project. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate each and every one of you. And now here's the interview with Jason Apps. Hey guys, we're back. And again, another special guest today. We have Jason Apps, the CEO of Arms Reliability. Jason, how are you? Very well. Thanks, Rob. No, thanks for coming on. And and, and just before we jumped onto the show, you know, I mentioned my first day, actually, my first week in reliability, I was in an arms course at Tech and, and, you know, that was about nine years ago. So everyone knows about arms and it was a great course and started me off on my journey. That's fantastic to hear. It's always good to hear people. Uh, And we get that a lot with people coming back to us saying that they, uh, you know, attended a course. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and, and still using the, the principles. So it's, it's good to hear. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, it speaks to the, the volumes of how good your product is. So Jason, I mean, obviously we don't have to really touch on it. A lot of people know what ARMS does, but you want to give us a, like a brief synopsis, like what do you guys offer? Like what's your core specialties? Uh, yeah, look, we, we are clearly reliability focused. So we've got a very, uh, narrow domain, which we're unapologetic about. We, we, we're very squarely focused on really supporting our, our clients and customers actually um, get value from the reliability work they do. We, we, it's a constant strive for us. Our, our, the purpose of our organisation is to make reliability a reality. So we're very, very focused on actually getting real results through the application of reliability techniques. So grew up as a consulting organization, really, um, you know, going out and facilitating reliability studies, all things strategy development, optimization, RAM modeling, um, spares level holding optimization, uh, root cause analysis. So anything in the sort of real tree, true reliability domain. Um, in our recent past, we've now started developing technology to support the application of those principles to make it a whole lot easier for people. Um, but again, really just focused on, uh, well, continually focused on and, and, and evolving our approach to help people actually get real results from the from the reliability work they do. Yeah, and that's something, you know, we, we touched on a lot on this show and, and I've seen through my career is it's it's great to have all the tools and do all the learning, but it's really the real meat on the bone is getting that value for your organization. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's, I think that's one reason that we're, we're still here as arms reliability. We've, we've never been satisfied really with, with, um, you know, the way, the way people have approached reliability and, and even the work that we've done, you know, finding out that you go back to a client, um, 12 months after a project's been completed and perhaps they didn't quite get the results that we forecast they should. Um, so the project didn't quite deliver the return that, that, that it should have. I mean, in the very early days, it was just literally people not even implementing the outcomes of a study. So, <laughs> a, you know, it's just been a constant evolution for us about how can we make this better and more real and, and really establish a, f- a foothold with the improvement that we make and sustain it over the longer longer term. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll dive a little more into that. But before we get into that, I want to I want to learn a bit more about you. How did you get your start in maintenance and reliability? Uh, well, interestingly, I uh, well, I, I'm a, a Peter and Turner by um, by trade. Um, so so a maintenance technician, basically uh, went on and did mechanical engineering Um and I guess I, I was working in, you know, what would be considered a maintenance engineering type role. Um, I was working for Alcar at the time. Alcar suggested to further my career, I, I go uh, transfer to Western Australia, um, to some of the refineries over there. Uh, and interesting to look back now, I, I didn't really pick up too much on it at the time, but, but I, I got on the plane as a mechanical maintenance engineer and I got off the plane as a reliability engineer. Um, so new role, uh, new title, new position description, not that I really took too much notice of that, I suppose. And the guidance I was given that, that was that reliability engineers work on longer term projects and maintenance engineers work on shorter term solutions and problems. And that was it, you know, and, and no surprise that there was probably not much impact really beyond maintenance engineering that that, that role 
delivered to Alcoa. Um, that was mid, early mid nineties. Um, I, I left Alcoa, I went to work somewhere else where I was, uh, the role was about, uh, helping operations and maintenance work together, um, for the benefit of equipment reliability. Uh, that was another role that was quite challenging, um, good position description, good philosophy, but really not, not much framework around that to support it. Um, and I started doing an MBA at that point because I was looking around and sort of, you know, how do I further my career and how do I move up the, the corporate ladder? And, and it was, you know, everyone was doing an MBA. So I started an MBA, and, and, but I got to a point where I'm like, I'm not, I'm not sure this is for me um, being a, a manager inside an operating facility. I, I was looking around and looking at managers and I, they weren't really... Um, I guess they weren't really doing a, a role that, that attracted me. So at that point, an opportunity came up. Um, we, as an organisation that I was working for, we were using ARMS reliability to support us with some reliability work. I really gravitated towards the technical application of reliability principles. Um, got the opportunity to uh, join ARMS, so did that. Um, and the rest is history. And, and I suppose for me, once I did that, then I become exposed to all of these reliability concepts. You know, I got taken through formal recourse analysis training and, and RCM training and, um, you know, Weibull training and all these all these concepts and principles that, that really opened my eyes in terms of what was available to support reliability work that, that people just weren't using at that point in time in industry. Yeah, I love it. And I still, you know, like I still think and see often is people that have maybe one or two or three of those things, but they're lacking the final couple pieces that would help really help them round out. Like, what do you see with your customers? Like, are they like, do you see them all coming at it? Like I, I kind of see three, I'll say like pillars that I see. It's like the culture people, the math people, and then sort of that, like the structured work RCM, RCA type people, and rarely do I see someone who can do all three. Yeah, it's good. It's a good point. Um, you, you do have that uh, mix of people within reliability, definitely, or, or even with organisations, what they focus on is their approach. Um, you know, organisations may focus on trying to create a culture of reliability, or they may focus on um, capability. Um, and real sort of technical detail, or, or they may focus on um, project project work. Um, and, and to be quite honest, I whilst those three aspects are there, I think what's missing is the overarching process then that supports the application of all those things that you need um, to really make reliability work. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I guess you know, getting on to it, so. One thing that is hugely important in reliability and, and actually to get that value and sustain a reliability is getting a reliability culture. And we talk about that a lot on this show, but you recently wrote an article called Driving a Reliability Culture and you published it on LinkedIn. And if people are listening, check the podcast notes for the link to that. Do you want to just give us an introduction to your article? Like what was the thesis of it? Um, look, it came about just because I think I, I, I had, um, you know, you know and you, these blog articles um, or, or, or um, articles you create, it come about generally because you've just had some recent experience and, and there's some sort of light bulbs that go on in your head. And, and for me, my recent experience had been a couple of organisations who, who had approached us um, really looking they were looking to impact uh, performance through reliability and, and they'd got to a point of going, well, we need to sort of drive culture uh, and in particular capability as well. Um, and so I, I was looking at that and the questions they were asking me and I was, I was you know, I was reflecting back to them that do, do they think that what they're asking us to do will actually meet their end goals? You know, and I, I guess I was challenging them that, that how they were going about trying to impact culture um, and capability or well, through capability 
um, predominantly, is that really going to deliver the outcomes that they're after? And, and I don't think it does. So that was the point of the article is how do you actually, there's a, there's a lot of focus on reliability culture um, and it's an important aspect that we need to get right and, and constantly work at. Like you're never there with culture, right? You've got to constantly work at it. And I think that's the bit that some people miss, that they, they attempt to address culture through some kind of kickoff initiative. So they might start a program and they might promote that and they might do some sort of communication around that on, on, the, on the site or through the organisation. And then they'll try and supplement that with capability. Um, but then it tends to end. And so the article was about, well, what's the things that are, that are missing um, that, I, that I think could really help uh, a established culture, but then B sustain the journey towards it, an effective reliability culture. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, jur- like in your article, you mentioned the two elements of of the you know this process was a clear pur- purpose and a reliability framework. And I get, I guess for me, you know, like what I've seen through my career is is a lot of companies they say like, hey we want to be world-class in reliability or we want to have world-class asset management. Like, is that a purpose or what is that? Uh, no, I think it's, it's probably wishful thinking. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what that is. Um, look, it's a pretty, I mean, it's an overarching a goal or something a statement, but, but really it's not, it's not a purpose in terms of driving decision-making is, is the point that I made. And, and you know, I, I couple, you know, a lot of uh, the, the culture and organisation work we do within arms, and it's pretty easy to translate that across to, to reliability culture. You know, you, you and, and even in the book um, that I wrote, we I talk I talk in the book about you know I think you can you can do some great work on culture, and and that can have everyone feeling good, but culture in the absence of purpose. Um, will mean that you're feeling good, but you're not really achieving much. Because I think it's purpose that really drives you towards outcomes. It's what everyone can then get behind. And the culture, the culture which is all about values and behaviours, are then focused towards a particular purpose. And the purpose is what drives the decision-making about you know, what you do and what you don't do. Culture you know, it is about values and behaviours. So what behaviours do we exhibit and what don't we exhibit? But but it's not about supporting decision-making in terms of where you're heading. So it's a really important aspect that if you if you have aspirations for a good reliability culture, yes, you've got to adjust the culture piece, but you've got to have the right purpose so that people understand what you're trying to achieve. And, and you know, you mentioned that you've, <clears throat> excuse me, heard people say they want to have world-class reliability. You know, the other one I've seen a lot of is is zero failures. And, and I mean, those kind of statements, are, I think, are almost counterproductive because, you know, you target zero failures or you say you want to have world-class reliability and then people see things failing and they don't see investment around either stopping the failures or delivering what they think world-class reliability is, um, then it all falls apart. Like, you're not, you're not supporting... Um, the purpose or the culture with with actual decision making that, that's moving in that direction. Absolutely, yeah. And it's funny, actually. Like earlier today on LinkedIn, I was kind of I was kind of chatting with Bob Latino about this, uh, at least from a safety perspective, where he said, you know, a lot of companies from safety they want this zero incidents mm. as a statistic and. On numerous times in my career, I've seen unreported safety incidents, and it's it's like, like what are you trying to drive with this behavior? Like you're putting a metric out there, and people are going to hit that metric whether you like it or yeah. not. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I I know that in my in my days in the, as an apprentice, I I actually remember cutting my finger once, um, but didn't go tell anyone because you, you, you know the <laughs> emphasis is on lowering the stats, right? And I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a significant injury um, at all um, but but it's that, that absolutely the metrics um, and the drive for certain things can absolutely affect behavior and therefore what people report and what they don't report so that's a that's a cultural thing um, 
so you've got to have, I mean, it's, it, it, I mean, the other point is it's not easy, right? I don't think, I don't think uh, creating a really good ongoing evolving culture is an easy thing to do. It takes constant work and focus and you've always got to look for opportunities to um, almost make examples of, of behaviours that aren't in the right direction or decisions that aren't in the right direction um, because that's how people then learn. Yeah, and I mean, like, like so maybe, like, obviously, like, you you run an organization and, like, from what I've heard from some of your employees is, like, there is a pretty strong culture. Now, like, what are some of the things that you do to, to sort of work on culture or improve the culture of, you, like, of your workplace? Um, well, like I say, you know, it's an ongoing... Um, uh, it, it's just an ongoing drive for us to continue to evolve our culture and improve it. Um, we, we, you, you, when I first started as CEO, we, we really rolled out our values. We had values in place, but we, we didn't really actively talk to them too much. So we really actively talk about our values a lot now um, to the point where, you know, most organisations have safety shares and we do as well in our organisation, but we also have value shares. So that's an opportunity for people to talk um, and share <clears throat> experiences or, or behaviours they've seen in other people that are really connected to our values and support um, behaviours that we like to exhibit. So that's that happens now in every um, uh, weekly operations meeting for all of our regions that we have value shares um, and in our engineering meetings as well. They roll right up to our monthly business performance meetings and also right to our board um, they're shared at our board ratings, those value shares. So it's a really effective way of, of uh, recognising good behaviours. Um, also taking the opportunity at times to share negative behaviours, again, just to, to use as an example, not to obviously um, blame anyone or, or um, you know, have any negative impact on anyone, but, but just to use as an example. So it's usually, it's usually someone like myself who's, who's using... An example of a behaviour I've exhibited that, that is out of alignment with our uh, value set, and and what we, what what I did to perhaps correct that. Um, so it's a really it, it values and behaviours are just got to be part of your dialogue on an ongoing basis. But what I learned pretty quickly was whilst that that's really effective at you know sort of helping people understand the behaviours that we want in a general sense, um, we had to document our purpose really heavily, and and we continue to have to talk about our purpose and use it in our decision making so that everyone understands as an organization what we're trying to achieve and people <clears throat> excuse me people can then challenge that um, you know it's a really effective uh, framework if you like to have in place for people to to have conversations about you know you can can pretty much any discussion you're having can be based around either values um, or purpose, because they're, they're the two things that really support where the organisation is going, how do we behave and, and what are we trying to achieve. Um, so, so we do all that um, and, we, and it's just a continual conversation around that. We're actually, uh, and we continue to work on it, we're still now helping people understand at a deeper level um, with some of the values, what are the expected sort of behaviours given their their roles in the organisation? So we've got values, uh, but they can be somewhat general in a, in a general sense, you know, integrity and respect, those kind of things. So then, what does that? What? How does that translate to pretty much everyone in the organisation given the role that we um, that they're playing in the organisation? So we're we're doing some work now to to help people with the next level of a. Of a uh, bit of a framework around, you know, how would we see the behaviours and engaging them in that process, right? What would they uh, think? So it's, it's an ongoing engagement and an ongoing discussion around um, values and, and purpose. And maybe just so people are clear is like, what would a, what's an example of a good purpose that, you know, maybe we could apply in our own organisations? <clears throat> yeah, look, I'm, I, I, look, I think it's if you when you're developing a purpose, and the way we did it was we we had a, you know we engaged some people. In fact, I engaged the whole organisation at the time of what they thought uh, was was good purpose for the organisation. What do they think we're trying to achieve? Just just trying to get everyone's perspective on what we do and how they perceive it. Um, and then we went through the exercise of sort of narrowing that down and, and really getting 
clear on um, what we what we're trying to achieve, pretty much the why uh, we do what we do, um, what's the actual outcome that we're looking for, um, and and so we and then it was quite hard to actually put that into one single sentence. So our our single sentence was um, the purpose at arms is to help our customers be safe and successful by making reliability a reality. So it, it, it took us a little while, but for us that connected what we do from a reliability perspective in terms of making it real for people and, and the why piece around, um, you know, keeping people safe and, and we're pretty passionate about success uh, for us and for everyone that we work with, everyone in the organisation. So tying all that together in one sentence took a little work. We had a few revisions of that. Um, but I think the key then is to stand back at the end and go, is this a statement? Is this purpose statement? Will it help us make decisions? So is, is it a statement that can help? We can stand behind and actually would support the decisions that we're making or help us make the right decision. So when you're, you know, if, you, if you're generating a purpose statement for any organisation, I think that's the test at the end. It, you know, it's the final sort of check of the, what you come up with. Will this is this effective for allowing us to use it to help drive decisions? So, you know, if we relate that to a general plant now in terms of reliability uh, culture and purpose, you know, and you can look at zero failures and go, well, is that is that really a statement that's going to help drive our decision making? And immediately, you know, it's not because you're not. It's really not the intent to have nothing fail. You know, it's okay when some things fail, right? So it's very easy to, to tear that apart when you look at it and, and just analyse it for a second and say, would it support our decision-making? You know, would we, could we stand behind that um, in terms of effective decision-making and you can't? So I think that's the chip. Yeah, I love it. And, and, you know, it comes back to the basics, right? Like if we're talking about reliability, a lot of people, they misconstrue reliability and say it means that there's nothing fails, but... What if the what if it's a light bulb, right? Like run to failure is the correct strategy, and that's that's the one we're going to pick. Yeah, exactly. So that that I think is why it's really important to, to if, you, if people are pushing uh, culture of reliability, and, and I guess even that you know that that term is dangerous, right? Like a culture of reliability, it, it's it, it quite often is not reliability that organisations are chasing. It, it, you know, it's it's the easy buzzword to latch onto, um, because generally they're trying to stop things breaking that they don't want to have break. But it, it might be availability they're chasing. It might be a certain service level. It might be a certain quality that's predominantly their driver. So being really clear about what it is you're trying to achieve, you can call it reliability culture as long as we're aware that perhaps it's not equipment reliability that we're chasing. So so that purpose statement is is really important, I think, if you're going to push the culture. So, again, people understand what you're trying to achieve. And when they see decisions being made and behaviours in place, they can see how that is supporting the purpose. That's the important piece. Otherwise, you just lose the engagement. Yeah, the, the that congruency, that, I mean, right there, if you're not, in, not acting in congruency with the, your purpose, it's it's over. Right. Like I've seen that so many times in organizations, actually even Sean Eisenhower from Eurodicio, if you go, if you find their YouTube channel, he put out a great, a great video where um, he's talking about how he loves his wife for, for Valentine's day while shredding all the, uh, all the presents in a, in a tree shredder. So it's, it's a great video. Check it out. Right. right, right. <laughs> so, so Jason, I mean, we kind of we kind of talked a little bit about the purpose. Now, the other side of it you mentioned was a reliability framework. What does that look like to you? Is that just a matter of like printing off the the uptime elements chart and you're ready to roll, or what? What's that look like? Uh, it's a good question, and I just to clarify what I mean by framework because it's kind of a it, it's a grey or undefined sort of word or, or people conjure up different things in their mind when I use the term framework. Um, I, I kind of, what I mean by it is if you if you drive culture um, and you have a good purpose, so let, let's picture now an organisation where we've done some great work around engaging the organisation on um, 
culture piece and 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 generally that's done through leadership sort of style work so if you you know if you think about um perhaps reliability webs leadership training um and i, and I did a talk on this at one stage I, t- to me that that's excellent um direction in terms of getting people what i call the mindset piece of leadership down pat it's really around you know how to how do people uh, lead um and become reliability leaders, which is which will, which will deliver a natural shift in reliability culture. Um, the uptime elements to me is really effective language. You know, like you, you can use those or that or that, uh, that I guess framework if you like um, to support the language and really standardise the language. So so that's really effective then at driving sort of a cultural uh, shift if you like. Um, I go that next step and make sure the purpose is really clear in terms of what we're trying to achieve and use that as part of the engagement with the organisation. And then the next piece, which I've kind of said framework, whether it's framework or process, I'm not, I'm not sure what the right term is, but but really what I mean is what's what's got to be implemented is basically a, a framework which consists of perhaps a number of processes that actually make reliability part of the business as usual for an organization and so what i mean by that is that traditionally what we find is that people treat reliability as a project so they may have reliability engineers in an organization um, but in my experience in terms of strategy review so at you know equipment reliability strategy review it's it's all typically done on a project by project basis and, and people fall into this cycle, and this is something we've seen across our experience, that you, you may go and review or optimise some reliability strategy, or even if it's a new asset, you might develop the initial reliability strategy. You'll go put that into place. And and people kind of think, well, the project's done now. The project's complete. We've developed the strategy. It's gone into SAP or Maxima or whatever it is that we've got, and we now go about executing that strategy. Um, what happens, of course, is the strategy deteriorates through a number of mechanisms. It, it may be that people go into that SAP system and just manually change intervals or, or tasks um, with, with very little reliability oversight. It might be a sort of a more practical oversight. Really good intent, but, but perhaps not the, the right rigour around that, that change. Um, or it might be we start using our assets slightly differently. Maybe we... we um, increase the duty, maybe we install some extra capacity, you know, whatever happens, the operation is constantly changing. So it's kind of now this misalignment between the strategies that we have and the operational requirements of the day. And so what what then happens is most organisations, they've either got poor sort of reliability or availability or, or whatever it is that they're chasing, poor performance, maybe high costs. Um, and so they'll initiate another project to review strategy. So they kind of fall into this cycle of, of every, depends on the industry, depends on the assets, maybe two, three, four, five years cycle of having to conduct these projects. And so, and, and even though we've got reliability engineers in place, what they get dragged into is predominantly doing root cause analysis, um, <laughs> right? And, and, and there's two reasons for that. I mean, one is we have lots of failures, so there's plenty of activity. The second reason really is that RCAs have, have what I call a natural trigger point in that you have a failure. So when something happens, you have a failure, we have to do something. So we do RCA. Strategy review is different to that. There's, there's not so much a natural trigger point. It's just these these bigger sort of, well, we're out of control, we've got high costs, so we've got poor performance, we need to go do a project type triggers. So, so for me, what, what's missing then is this process or this framework that sits over all of that. So what is the, think of it this way, what is the framework that a reliability engineer operates in? If you go to most uh, industrial organisations, you'll see the reliability engineer and probably what they have is a position description and maybe an overarching reliability strategy type document that they probably have read but probably don't really take much notice of. They're probably pulled into RCAs because there's too many failures to do and they may execute those. And even those may or may not be done 
well or may the actions may not be implemented or tracked well. Um, so it's kind of devoid of, of any kind of framework for that that person to operate in. I mean, I, I think reliability engineers are pretty much set up to fail. And that's why organisations then continue to try and change. You know, we, we have reliability engineers and we have improvement engineers and then we centralise and then we decentralise and we go round and round and round because we're trying to chase what's going to work and at, at the moment nothing's working. If you just contrast that for a second to, say, work management, work execution management, um, entirely different. You have a, a planner or a scheduler and they have an entire framework to operate in. They've got a technical solution, SAP or Maxima or Oracle or whatever system they might have. They would have a well-defined process, probably printed and put on the wall about who, um, you know, who can raise notifications, who approves whether works get done or not, how do we prioritise it, who plans it, who schedules it, the work goes, gets done, what feedback do we get, what does that whole cycle look like is very clear to people. There's a lot of education, there's a lot of training. So it's an entirely different um, uh, approach to work execution management that we haven't yet overlaid onto reliability. And that's, to me, that's the piece that's missing. You know, from a reliability perspective, it's a different function, a different technical solution. It's a different process. Uh, you need trigger points to trigger the process. Um, you know, you need ways to prioritize effort so that you're productive, you need a good structured data set so it's efficient to work with um, and consolidated. So it's it's a very, you know, that that's the framework I'm talking about. Now, we, if you've read any of our material, it's a process with strategy management. And, and we think if you, if you put that process into place, um, then you'll really support the development of the culture because people start seeing activity on an ongoing basis not project basis, on an ongoing basis, there is a process that's business as usual that is constantly directing people to review strategy or do RCAs on areas of risk where they can really add some value. I love it. I love it. Like, like I, I probably at this point, maybe once a month, but maybe sometimes more often get a question from either the listeners or or sometimes maintenance managers, and, and they always ask me, which is kind of funny, is like, what should my reliability engineer be doing? Or or if, if they are a reliability engineer, it's what should I be doing? And it, it just goes to show that like a lot of these roles, they are sort of free form. And it's, it's really like, if you have a good reliability engineer, they'll figure it out and they'll add value. But if you don't, then you know, a lot of these young guys, like they'll get put in a role, they don't have a lot of training and they're just kind of going wherever the winds take them. Yeah, look, I, an interesting contrast that I, I talk to people about is, is really, I mean, imagine, um, imagine hiring a planner, creating a position description that basically says you're gonna plan work, um, but, you don't, but you don't implement SAP and you don't develop that process flow, and you don't engage the rest of the organisation, you just plonk them in place, and you don't actually train them. Perhaps they're you know, a very uh, experienced tradesperson, or perhaps a young engineer, and we just call them a planner, and, and maybe we send them on a two-day planning course, but then we plonk them in the organisation and we say, go plan, you know? To me, that's what we've done to reliability engineers. You know, we've, we've, we've literally, like you say, relying on, well, well, good reliability engineers will just naturally know what to do or, or we'll send them on a two-day course and, and they'll learn everything they need to know. And, and so this is, we can kind of circle back to, to a point we talked about earlier around the capability. If you, you know, organisations think they'll get an outcome out of just creating capability, so that's like sending all of our reliability engineers on, I don't know, root cause analysis training, or RCM training, and then that capability will just make things happen, and, and it and it's a and it won't, you know. It's an essential element, you know. You obviously you want capable people in those roles, but but what's missing that really drives improvement is is the framework or the process that's going to make reliability work part of the business as usual process. Like you just. An RE to me, a reliability uh, engineer should walk into uh, their office 
uh, on a daily, weekly basis and be very clear about what are the what are the areas of risk that I currently have that I need to go address? And they're, and they're tools. So this is where the capability then comes in. The tools at their disposal might be, you know, wireball analysis or RCM or um, uh, root cause analysis or, you know, some kind of RAMS model, whatever it is that they're going to apply, but they're driven by the process through trigger points. You've got to set up the trigger points. Through trigger points, where do I need to focus my effort? And, and lift out of... If you're going to do reliability strategy review, because this is the mindset that we have, if we're going to do reliability strategy review, I need to do an RCM on something, right? Now, our, our philosophy on that is if you've got a process going and you've got a good foundation, strategy review is almost a failure mode by failure mode exercise, right? You see areas of risk. You understand what's created the areas of risk. Someone's changed... Um, a plan cycle perhaps in your system or perhaps we've changed the duty of the asset or something's changed which has created a risk. We look at that risk. It's it's certainly down at a component level, maybe even a single failure mode level where the where the risk has come from that you can address. So it's a it's just ongoing sort of um, just continuous process of evolution of the strategy to always keep it in alignment with the operational requirements and the asset condition, you know, because I think that's it's the other mindset people are in and it's why we've landed in this project sort of mindset is that it, it, we forget that everything changes. We build the strategy and we put it in place and then we forget that the whole operations are changing, the assets are getting older, um, perhaps even the capability of our tradespeople is changing, maybe improving, maybe it's declining as people retire. Technologies uh, becoming available to enable us to get smarter and do... Um, smarter condition assessment type work. Um, so everything's changing, you know, and and, and yet we, we kind of let our strategies be static because we, we haven't got this process in place. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. I mean, I've seen it a bunch of times, but it seems like everyone's done an RCM maybe five or 10 years ago and their business from them to now has just, it's not even the same business really. Like, yeah, okay, maybe you're still getting coal out of the ground, but it looks completely different. It, exactly. It's exactly right. And and so that's the, that's what we see over and over and over again, you know, and our, our point about that is, well, gee whiz, we've, we've familiar everything to death. You know, there's really not many at a component level, you know, down at a motor gearbox sort of pump level. There's really not many component types that we haven't, to make it or RCM to death. So we've got all that content really available. You know, there's nothing new or incredibly um, special about about that work. Taking it and applying it to your own operational environment is, is, the, trick, is the trick and the challenge and keeping that up to date. So that's what the process has got to drive. So that you don't need to, you know, go back and do the RCM. I mean, if you actually talk to most organisations, they've had a few swipes at it, right? So they may have done RCM 10 years ago, and then they probably did pick another variant, MTA seven years ago, and then they had a crack at PMO five years ago, and then they you know, <laughs> slightly different name for the same exercise, because we're just trying to find the one that works, and, and it's not one that works, it's a process that works. Love it, love it, love it. Now, Jason, we kind of got to wrap up a little bit here. So I want to ask you this question, though, because I always love this question. And it really is, is like, where do you see the future of reliability going in the next five to 10 years? Yes, yeah, great question. Um, look, I think um, I actually think that the, we're a little confused right now. There's, you know, there's like lots of industries, we at, uh, kind of saturated with information and we have very clever marketing people and, and sales people and, and so there's and then there's lots of technical people so there's lots of content uh, around uh, lots of buzzwords um, so I actually think uh, and, and I've had this experience recently where people are starting to just take a breath a little and, and um, think about strategically what is it we've got to put in place here i've seen some horrible examples of people rushing down a um sort of asset health asset condition monitoring path like an all-in approach figured that perhaps 
is not cost effective on everything. Perhaps it's hard to scale. So we, we, we treated out of that a little bit. Um, you know, it, it, there's a real desire, I think, to utilize, um, you know, AI, machine learning, all that sort of cool stuff uh, in, in, a, in a maintenance and reliability realm. Um, I think we haven't quite figured out yet where it adds the most value and how to best apply that. So I actually think where, and, and I think some of that, some of that has led to a, um, led to us taking our eye a little off the strategic thinking. We, we kind of maintain the high level strategic thinking around, you know, strategic asset management plans um, and, and the like through, through the ISO standards and guidelines. But I think we've lost the middle bit around well, what's a what's a, an effective reliability strategy for an asset over its whole of life. Um, we sort of, to me, taken our eye a bit off that, um, perhaps in the last few years. But I think that's starting to make a shift. So, so where I see we'll probably end up is I th I think that we'll have very clear strategic layers and transactional layers of of technology and therefore processes because technology just supports the process. So what I mean by that is at a transactional level, you know, it's work execution management and it's and it's ongoing monitoring of asset health and condition. So both very transactional um, processes, we, we're executing work all the time and getting feedbacks a constant cycle and we're constantly monitoring and um, information and then you know, deciding how best to use that information to either go execute work or perhaps change strategies. But all that happens at the transactional level. But I think the information will then connect to a strategic level where we'll, we'll, we'll get back in control of our strategic thinking from a reliability strategy perspective over a whole of an asset life. Um, so when we, and we'll understand how to connect those things very well, because I don't think we've done that very well at the moment, but but let me just round out what I mean by the strategic layer. So if you think about when we when we buy uh, assets or we have existing assets and we want to get the most from them, we we develop a, an effective reliability strategy which we're going to go execute on a on a you know, periodic basis. So there might be some activity that goes down to that transactional level, and then SAP or whatever it is we've got just goes and executes it. At the same strategic level, we might work out where is it cost effective to do some very sophisticated uh, asset health monitoring here. And again, that, that then justifies where we implement that and it goes down to the transactional layer and we just start that monitoring. And and, and those transactional processes just keep, keep rolling and delivering what we need them to deliver. But the strategic level would make those decisions. There's longer term strategic decisions now about well, when do we replace that asset that, that asset replacement will require some capital. Um, and so that's a capital kind of request. But then the, the third level down there is, is now the capital prioritization or, or optimization of spend. So whilst we might need to replace something in five years time, the capital constraints might not allow us. So we've got an, a life extension like, like we often deal with. So, so that's got to circle back to now, well, what do we do at a, at a strategy level to support that life extension? So that whole strategic layer is a very different exercise to the transactional um, processes that we need in place to, to manage performance on an ongoing basis. So long answer, I hope that's kind of clear in terms of my thinking that we, we're going to see uh, this kind of separation, if you like, of, of very strategic thinking and the processes and the technology and the systems that support that strategic layer um, that are then interacting with very um, succinct transactional systems that are kind of managing the continuous processes of work execution and asset health monitoring. I love it. I love it. <coughs> like, Jason, we're going to have to have you back on because... I think we could do a whole show on just strategic asset management and that kind of that next level of thinking where, you know, like most of the time we talk about just purely like the projects or condition monitoring or whatever. And I've always thought that we don't talk about this kind of life cycle asset plans enough and that level of thinking and aligning it, which it's cool now that, you know, ISO 55,000 came out and, 
is starting to become the discussion, but that'll be for another day. <laughs> yeah, and no, I'd, I'd look forward to it. It's a great discussion. I, I agree. I think we haven't quite, you know, we do some of the some of the whole of life stuff, but asset selection maybe. Um, and I also starting to talk about the whole of life um, aspect, but I think you know connecting that. At, a, at this sort of strategic level is is really to me they're the organization the organizations that embark on that are the organizations that will win absolutely so jason last thing i got for you do you have anything to plug so just so you know this podcast will be coming out probably like late december or early january so do you have anything coming up like obviously people should check out armsreliability.com but are you going to be at any conferences or should they follow you on linkedin uh, look, absolutely. Follow us on LinkedIn. Um, constantly putting out articles. Happy and actually really enjoy discussion around with anyone about this topic. As you can see, we're we're pretty passionate. I'm pretty passionate about about it, and we're always looking to evolve. You know, I don't think anyone has all the answers yet. So happy to be part of the discussion. So follow us on LinkedIn. Uh, join the conversation with our material and, and articles. We'll absolutely be at IMC. Come see us. Um, and, and and probably uh, recommend people pick up the book if they're interested in reading more about our approach. Uh, covers there just just how we would go about um, building that framework and process. Uh, whether you're a, an organisation looking to do it, or even an individual on an individual plan who would like to start trying to influence the organisation to to start building the framework. You know how would we go about that? So perhaps a good read for people who are in either of those two spots to understand their approach a little more and, and some things that might work for them. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're looking for the links to any of that stuff, just check the podcast notes. So Jason, uh, I appreciate you spending some time with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Robin, I'd, I'd love to do it again. Absolutely. Yeah, we got a lot more to talk about, I'm sure. So <laughs> I'll sure. reach out in a couple months. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Look forward to it. Yeah. So everyone who's still listening, I appreciate you listening. And I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. I, I really, uh, I was, I was getting real fired up on that last question. So we, we got to definitely have another one on that one. So if you haven't yet follow Rob's reliability project on LinkedIn and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you all next week.